Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is January 15th, 2023. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. How goes it, my man? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. How about you? Oh, not too bad. It's been a unseasonably warm January by Saskatchewan standards, which means we are in the minus single digits instead of minus double digits. So that's, uh, <laughs> it's actually pretty warm. I, uh, I'm quite impressed that I can go outside with only a light jacket and uh, not be cold. Great. <laughs> yeah, Jan January is typically the coldest month of the year everywhere in Canada. And I think it's been the warmest uh, winter month so far. Um, December, I believe, was far and away the coldest month in Canada. Because uh, that was outrageously cold, especially out here. Yeah, exactly. So it's, a, so it's a fantastic way to start the new year. So... Another great way to start the New Year Canada is with us, and we've got a heck of a show for you today. On the show today, World Economic Forum featuring our own Christian Freeland. Alberta gets intervener status in firearms lawsuits. Saskatchewan rolls out private liquor sales. And more. Where do you want to start, sir? Well, let's start with Alberta. Uh, getting intervener status. Sir, sounds great. And I actually forgot to add one topic to the show, but we'll just jump into it later without without announcement. Um, the Alberta government has now received intervener status in the uh, Canadian Coalition of, for Firearms Rights lawsuits against the federal government. There are, I believe, six lawsuits that have been launched um, all over Bill C-21. And so thank you to the CCFR for stepping up. And now the Alberta government has decided that they're going to join the fight. So I'm actually kind of encouraged. Yeah, that's good. I mean, they, they've been, they, uh, I mean, Alberta's kind of been on side with the, with the firearms groups right from the beginning. Um, they've been, they were, they were the first province to say that they would not use provincial funds to, uh, um, fund the RCMP to go around and confiscate weapons. Uh, they were the first ones to say that they totally uh, were not on board with the gun bans. Um, like Alberta has been on the side of the citizen, uh, which is great. I mean, it's not often that you see governments actually stand up for their people. Um, and Alberta has been, and that's great. Um, Saskatchewan did as well, though they somewhat kind of backtracked uh, and in, and implemented a uh, uh, a law that is to protect the firearms owner, saying that the uh, any firearm that is confiscated has to be compensated for. But that isn't what firearms owners want. <laughs> I mean, I I really don't want my my gun taken away and then get money for it. I just don't want my gun taken away, period. Um, so Saskatchewan kind of dropped the ball there. They, they, but they are against the ban as well. Um, there's several provinces now, um, but 
Alberta's always been the first one, the one that uh, is right at the the lead of the pack um, and kind of leading the way. And so uh, as a firearms owner and a CCFR member, uh, I thank I thank the province of, B, of Alberta for uh, doing that. I, I know I would never, ever count on my own province to stand up for me. So uh, I have to depend on uh, my neighboring province to do that for them. Yeah, well, and you're right. And it, it's disappointing that Saskatchewan took the, the stand they did. I mean, they've still decided that they will not commit RCMP resources to the gun confiscation. But at least Danielle Smith was... Well, she was just steadfast in saying that, no, the feds are not going to intrude on what is Alberta citizens' property rights. And yeah, she's put her money where her mouth is. I'm hoping that the Assembly of First Nations also attempts to join an intervener status because they've also been very vocal against uh, the, the gun confiscation. As have a couple of Liberal MPs, like the MP for Yukon and the MP for Northwest Territories, for example, have openly spoke out, say they won't support Bill C-21. Charlie Angus with NDP, is, uh, is, who's a Northern Ontario MP, again, represents a large rural riding with lots of firearms owners, has said that, no, that's, this, this is horrible. So I, uh, I don't know how the, uh, the government, well, the Liberal Party, could blow this issue so badly and they i think that they they could easily have just sort of snuck this through under the radar if they hadn't overreached and decided that yeah we're going to ban everything except single shot muzzle load muskets and they may have gotten away with it but i don't know if it's trudeau and his cabinet or if it's bureaucrats but they have blown this so bad well, and I mean, is that really a surprise that they've blown it? I mean, they've blown everything that they've done, right? I mean, <laughs> they, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, you show me anything that they've actually done successfully without screwing it up. They haven't. There's nothing. I mean, they couldn't even legalize pot without screwing it up. And they did, by the way. <laughs> they, they, they did. did screw it up, they, yes. they, they screwed it up. They screwed it up bad. Like, um, because the province or the, the federal government has this tendency, and I mean, not not federal governments in general, just this one has the tendency to say, all right, let's do this. They do their, uh, you know, whether it's legalize pot or introduce made or um, ban a bunch of guns. Uh, no matter what they have done, they have public support for it. And then they do it and they totally mess it up. Like when they did that with, when they, when they introduced the legalization of pot, they, they said, okay, well, as of this date, pot will be legal. We don't know how you're going to do it. We're not going to give you any guidelines. We're not going to, we're not going to set up a framework in the, in the country. We're just legalizing it and the provinces, you figure it out. And they do that with everything. They, they kind of offload all responsibility to the provinces and, but they do it in a way that like the pot legalization, it was done differently in every province. And 
I know here in BC, like when the day that pot became legal, there was only one store in the entire province that was legal, that had that was licensed to sell pot on the day that it became legal. Because just because nobody knew how to do it, because nobody gave any guidelines. And I mean, it was it was more than a year, I think, be, before um before bc's pot stores were like good to go um it's just they do this with everything and so they 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 started this gun ban because this this c21 for those who don't know c21 originally was essentially banning handguns it was essentially banning the private ownership of handguns now, for whatever rationale that people can come up with, it actually had support in Canada. I don't know why. Well, I do know why. Because government and media in this country found a way to scare Canadians into thinking that private ownership of handguns is what's driving gang violence in this country all the gun violence in this country was because canadian licensed and legal firearms owners in this country that owned handguns were either selling their handguns to to gangs or using them themselves to shoot people and i've even seen quotes from from people here um like Academics. <laughs> I saw a quote from one academic, cannot remember the name at the moment, who said that licensed gun owners are not murderers until they start killing their spouses, family, and neighbors. <laughs> and that's the mentality that we're dealing with in Canada when it comes to. Oh handguns. my God. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what we're dealing with in Canada when it comes to the mentality of Canadians is that they they actually think that that licensed firearm owners are uh, eventually going to be murderers and that they're going to kill their spouses, they're going to kill their families, and they're going to kill their neighbors. And so this handgun ban, Bill C-21, had general support across the country. And the Liberals... Either they thought that that support would be there no matter what, or they are purposefully tanking this this legislation so that they can say they did they tried to do something, but they but uh, um, but it didn't work out or something along those lines. But they um, they decided to tack on another gun ban to the same legislation through an amendment and that gun ban started encompassing hunting rifles and shotguns that most hunters have um and then support started falling off quite rapidly it's like you they could have pushed this through with no problems 
And the only people in the country who would have had handguns were the cops and the criminals. But they were, like I said, either too ambitious or they had a plan to tank this legislation all along. Um, but they, uh, but they screwed it up just like they screw up every other piece of legislation that they put forward. Yeah. I don't give the government enough credit to be smart enough that they would tank this bill on purpose. I mean, they've, they've, they're just, they've proven themselves incompetent everywhere, as you pointed out already. So I think it's a matter of they, they just decided to overreach thinking they had the support for it and are stunned that they got pushback. So I'm a, uh, I'm happy to see that it's starting to blow up in their face because it's, uh, I mean, it may still end up going through, but uh, this fight is far from over. And that's what I'm happy with. Well, I don't think, I don't think it'll go through. Um, simply because I don't think they got the votes for it because, and we talked about this before where we said, you know, we didn't understand what was going on with the NDP where they were supporting these gun bans because uh, much of the NDP uh, caucus represents rural ridings. Um, and we saw that come into play uh, during all this. You see, you know, Charlie Angus, you see other NDP MPs that are, are going, uh, no, this is going a bit far, right? Um, and that's because they're hearing from their constituents. They are, they're hearing from their constituents because their constituents, for the most part, are hunters. You know, a lot of, well, not for the most part, a lot of them are hunters. And, but if they're not hunters, they're people who, you know, this is something that people who live in rural areas understand a lot more than people who live in the city. And that is freedom matters. Um, your rights matter. Uh, and, and people who live in rural areas tend to understand this a lot more than people who live in cities. And it's simply because if you live in a rural area, you understand you have more freedom than someone who lives in a city. You, you have this, you know, you don't want that taken away. But people who live in the city have already had it taken away. Um, so the, there's there is a divide between rural and, and uh, urban areas in this country when it comes to stuff like firearms ownership. Um, just because there is an understanding with people who live in rural areas about what it, what freedom and what you know your rights mean uh, that that you just don't have in the city. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a good I, point. And there's no, and this isn't a slight against people who live in the city. I'm not insulting you. It's just this is you're conditioned. I mean, from from when, uh, yeah, as a young child, you are conditioned to to think that this is the way things are. Um, and for eighty percent of Canadians, it is the way things are because eighty percent of Canadians live in big cities. Um, but uh, but if you ever you know live in a small town and you see just how much more people are able to do than you are in the city. It's, it, it's oftentimes a little shocking for people from the city. 
Yeah, well, that's a good point. And uh, actually, we'll, we'll segue that point about uh, control and loss of your freedoms to let's talk about the WEF, where you will own nothing and be happy. Yeah. Um, the World Economic Forum has started their annual meeting in Davos this year. Uh, they're, well, they're all there now, so I'm guessing that tomorrow will be the day they actually start meeting to discuss how they want to rule the world. And our very own Christopher Freeland is there, our Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, and as it turns out, board member of the WT, WEF, sorry, I almost said WTF. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be more member. appropriate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, yeah, so she's a board member of the WEF. She will be speaking at this year's forum. Um, I know Andrew Lawton is one journalist who has spoke up and said, well, that seems to be kind of a conflict of interest that she's on the board of the WEF and is also the second most powerful politician in Canada. And then um, Andrew Lawton actually also had suggested that maybe she's still gunning for that uh, that job at NATO. I am... What are your thoughts? Well, first of all, did you know she was a board member of the WEF? I did not know that. I knew that she was, um, I can't even remember what they, they called them, but uh, whether it was a fellow or a promising whatever. I mean, Vladimir Putin was also that a few years ago. So well, I, you mean, I didn't. You mean comrade? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for lack of a better title, that's probably exactly what it was. But yeah, I knew she was some kind of prominent uh, member, but I did not know she was on the board. But um, yeah, I had no idea either. That's quite the conflict of interest as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I had no idea that she was a board member of the uh, WEF. I mean, that, that's... It makes total sense when you see the stuff that's happening in Canada that our federal government is trying to do accomplish here, um, because it's all stuff that the WEF has been proposing for years. And, uh, and I mean, the WEF, like, I've never understood how they can even, you know, with a straight face, call themselves an economic forum, uh, because the economy is their enemy. They, they don't, they don't even like they don't want us to do well because I mean, they, they, it is part of their philosophy that, that citizens of a country relinquish all kinds of rights and freedoms, including the right to, to private property ownership. And I mean, Klaus Schwab, who, who is the head of the WEF, who by the way, has accomplished nothing in his life except uh setting this group up and somehow suckering most of the world's uh, most powerful politicians into joining it okay well maybe he has accomplished something um but he's never <laughs> he's never accomplished anything of importance that uh you know makes him a wealthy man or anything like that like I, i've looked at his personal wealth and everything he's not uh, even a wealthy guy which I mean, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, supports his view of nobody should be wealthy, right? Like he's not even a wealthy guy and he's proposing all this. I mean, maybe he's hidden his wealth or something because he's, he, uh, but, but the thing is, is that he is, he's a nobody who has made himself into a somebody with without being a somebody like you know what i mean like he he's just he's just not 
accomplished anything except this and and his he's the guy who actually said by 2030 you will own nothing and be happy and and it's that, that is such a scary notion and it's so scary to even contemplate what he's proposing yet our finance minister obviously uh subscribes to that way of thinking yeah well they're talking about uh, cooperative economic foundations i believe and stakeholder capitalism and redefining capitalism and it's uh it's all socialism is what they're talking about they want global socialism so i'm i'm not surprised that christopher freeland is all for it because we know justin trudeau is all for it but uh, of course, um, as uh, now I can't remember. Oh, Andrew Wilkow, who's a talk show host on Sirius XM, he has said several times, "Socialism isn't for the socialists; it's for you. So you will own nothing and be happy, while they continue to ride around the limousines and fly on private jets and tell you that you're only allowed one vacation a year. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Enjoy your socialism because you're going to get it good and hard." Yeah, well, I mean, and, and it's true. Like, it's something, it's actually kind of funny. Like, I've been watching uh, the final season of uh, of The Walking Dead lately. And it's a show I gave up on years ago because there's only so much, you know, murder porn that I can watch. <laughs> um, but But I gave up on it years ago. And then when I saw season 11 came to Netflix here, I was like, Oh, I, I believe this is the final season, so I'll just watch the the final season. Well, turns out the final season is actually pretty good. But the there was something that was said um, by one of the characters on the show that com- totally applies, and, and, and it said, "The poor must remain poor so the rich can do whatever the hell we want." That actually sums up the World Economic Forum right there. Yep. And that's exactly what our government has been doing, you know, telling us that we're, you know, we're, we're, we won't be allowed to drive cars. We have to have electric cars, you know, no more gas, no more gas stoves and, uh, uh, or gas fireplaces or, you know, gas furnaces or gas hot water heaters, you know, no more of that, but we're going to fly around on our private jet. You know, we're going to, you know, 85, 85 of us are going to fly to the, uh, you know, climate change conference or something on private jets, right? But you're not allowed to have a gas car. And and that's just the, that's just what's going on. And it's like, and, and like I said it again to my wife yesterday, I said, you know, I don't, I don't understand why people don't trust their own eyes and ears. You know, they, they see what's going on, they they hear what's going on, but then the media tells them something different and they go, oh, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's actually a really good summary. So, well, I mean, we're seeing it, we're seeing it right now with this whole gas stove controversy in the States, right? Which we know is something they're going to, con- that they're talking about in Ottawa, 
right? Like, like, let's not be stupid. Let's not pretend that they're not. I mean, in fact, I think someone already admitted that they, that's something that they've been talking about in Ottawa in the liberal circles is, you know, how do we get rid of these assault stoves in, uh, <laughs> in people's kitchens? I mean, it, because in the States, like that's what they're, they, they, someone, uh, someone said, they said, well, maybe we should be banning um, gas stoves from new houses. And it's like, I don't know. I have a gas stove. I've had a gas stove for many, many, many years because cooking on electric, like on electric burners sucks. Cooking on gas, like on a flame, on open flame, that is the best way to cook. It's so much better. And, um, and who the hell, like they're, they're citing this study, this, there, there was one study that said that there was a 12, I believe 12.6% of childhood asthma is from people using gas stoves in their house. Except that that study didn't include whether or not the parents smoked or if they lived in a city or out in the country or, you know, they didn't take into account any other factors, any other thing that is known to cause asthma None of those factors were even looked at. It was just whether or not the house had a gas stove. Of course. And that's the, that is the study. Like 12.6% of kids with asthma have gas stoves in the house. Well, then I guess gas stoves had nothing to do with it. Well, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, so, no, so like, more incompetence. But last week, nobody was talking about gas stoves. This week, oh my God. We have to ban them. And it's like, even, even people I know have bought into it already. Like it's unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable how gullible people are, especially after the last three years. Like we just yeah. believe whatever we're fed and we just repeat it. And, and it's, it's, it's so scary that it's that easy. Yeah, well, speaking of scary, and this is uh, on the incompetence front, this is what I forgot to bring up at the beginning of the show, is that the Canadian government actually got a military procurement right, except that it was for Ukraine. Now, the <laughs> government had a $500 million purchase of surface-to-air missiles, and I thought, great, because our military has been begging for that for at least a decade now, and it turns out that we made that purchase for Ukraine and well, what do you know? They're taking delivery right away. Well, we still haven't figured out what to replace our World War II handguns with. It's so, so pathetic. Oh my God, it's unreal. I mean, it's, there is no wonder that our government or that our military membership has dwindled to where it is today because we do not have proper firearms we do not have proper jets we do not have proper uh tanks or uh you know armored vehicles um everything that we've got is super old and worn out uh i mean our handguns are so worn out that oftentimes they don't even work and yet we can't we can't buy new ones because 
I mean, look at the Jets. Look at the F-35s. Harper signed a deal for F-35s 10 years ago. And then was forced to backtrack on that because they didn't they didn't look at other possibilities. Well, anybody who knew anything knew that the F-35 was the best jet in the world. Yes, they had some issues, but by the time we were going to get those planes, those issues would have been worked out. And, and then 10 years later, after the liberals proclaimed they would never buy F-35s, they promised Canadians they would never buy the F-35. I don't know why the F-35 was such an evil plane, but they promised Canadians they would not buy F-35s. They bought F-35s, 88 of them. And they won't be delivered. I think the first ones will be delivered in 2026. And the first squadron that will be airborne will be 2028. Um, so that means that by the time we initially put the order in with Harper, to when our first planes will be airborne as a squadron, um, will be like 15 years. And all because of incompetence. I mean, they ran this, this competition to see which planes they were gonna buy and they completely wasted, what, four years? I mean, of everybody's time, including the manufacturers of the planes. I mean, Boeing was falsely, uh, was, was, you know, basically fooled into thinking that they were even in the running. Um, same thing with the uh, Eurofighter. I mean, they, they, I, why would we even contemplate the Eurofighter? Or the or the uh, the Saab Vigan, I mean, either one of those planes. None of our allies in North America. I mean, the U.S. or Mexico. Uh, neither of them have those planes. I mean, and those are, and the U.S. is the one that we go to uh, to combat areas with. That I mean, that's we always go with the U.S. Why would we use planes that the U.S. doesn't even have? Like we are a small, a small player in this. Like the U.S. has 88 F-35s on an aircraft carrier. I mean, that's on one aircraft carrier. That's our entire order is 88, right? Like we don't, we're not, we're not big players. Why would we think we could go our own way on this? Oh yes, but as we always say on this show. Well, there's more when it comes to our military. Because of the woke liberal culture, our military has now contracted uh, U of A professor Andy Knight, who is originally from Barbados, but he's uh, an expert in racial studies, according to his, his CV, is now going to root out, and well, I shouldn't say root out, but his, he is commissioned to look for white supremacy in the Canadian Armed Forces. So ask yourself exactly why anybody would want to sign up for the armed forces right now, why they're having so much trouble recruiting people when they're actually paying somebody to call them a bunch of racists and white supremacists. 
I mean, uh, when you say this government can't get anything right, it's like, it's almost like they're deliberately shooting Canadians in the foot. That's, uh, is there racism in the CAF? Possibly. And uh, the article I read to talk about Andy Knight was saying that he, there was quoted uh, a retired general from the Canadian Armed Forces, and his name escapes me now. I've heard him talk on the Roy Green show. He's actually a pretty cool guy. But um, he had said that, well, look anywhere you want and you'll find racism. If you're looking for it, you'll find it. So, of course, this guy is going to find it. And he's, I'm, I'm guessing he's being paid to say it's widespread and that the CAF needs a major reform. But, you know, um, I, we posted an article on our Facebook page in, about this about a week or so ago. And uh, listener Ashley had commented on it that, you know what, this is one of those those kind of jobs where you just want the best people, period, whether they're black, white, yellow, red, male, female, somewhere in between, you just want to get the best damn people. I mean, if there's anywhere you want colorblind hiring, it would be the armed forces or your police services. But no, 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 let's go hunting for white supremacists instead. Ridiculous. Yep. I mean, there are a few, there's, I mean, every job should be a meritocracy, but the military, the police, the firefighters, uh, paramedics, you know, first responders, the military and, and medical system <laughs> are those jobs where it should just be a meritocracy, top to bottom, meritocracy. And there should be no accounting for race or sex or sexual orientation or your pronouns or any of this BS. I mean, it should just be best person gets a job, period. End of discussion. And the problem is with this government that we have in Ottawa, it's with the indoctrination that our children experience in school uh, and all of that, where they end up thinking that best person for the job is, is, is not important. The only thing that, that is important is diversity and inclusion. And this is something that has permeated our younger uh, generations because I mean anybody who has kids in school right now knows what they're coming home and telling you was said in the classroom by their teacher today um, and this is stuff that I don't stand for I whenever my kid comes home from school and tells me something that the teacher said that I find completely reprehensible I go directly to the teacher, and if I don't get anywhere with the teacher, I go to the principal. I have had to do this numerous times. And um, now I have to be, I still, my kids are both in high school right now, and it's, it's something I have to be actually uh, very, very careful with now, because now if I go to the school and tell them that I found something that the teacher said that was reprehensible, especially when it comes to race or sexual orientation, um, 
I can be very quickly branded a bigot or a racist or a um, transphobe or something. Um, so I have to be very, very careful now. And it's, and it is completely asinine in my view that I should have to be really, really careful about this stuff because it's, I mean, as anyone knows, I mean, the, the stuff that, that we're talking about is, is actually ruining many of our institutions, our education system being one of them. Uh, our military, which is what we're talking about, the people that we want to protect us, uh, they, I mean, we've been more concerned about allowing purple hair and face tattoos than we have been about procuring handguns or making sure that we can actually recruit new people. Um, the U.S. military has no problem recruiting people. With the Canadian military, it's all, they almost have to kidnap people to join. And, and my kids, when, when we went, I, my family, we, we went to Hawaii for, uh, for a holiday before Christmas. And one thing that my kids noticed without provocation from myself or my wife, my kids noticed immediately how well Americans treat their military and how much they respect their military, that there is military prices on drinks at restaurants, um, that there's a military discount on uh, almost everywhere. Um, and my kids thought that was really cool and in Canada, we almost treat our military like we should be ashamed of them. And the, we don't outfit them. I mean, we talked about this, what, two years ago, about how the Canadian Armed Forces don't even have an icebreaker. Yet, we have the largest Arctic Ocean uh, area right? That's our territory that we need to patrol of any country in the world. I believe it's even bigger than, than Russia's, right? Um, which is kind of crazy because it's such a huge country, but, but we have more open, open, uh, I believe we have more open sea, like where we need, where we would need an icebreaker than Russia does. And we don't even have an icebreaker. We don't have icebreakers. We don't have uh proper handguns we don't have uh proper um like we don't have any, like new jets we don't have you know proper armored vehicles for transporting soldiers i mean it, it's it's an embarrassment it is a complete embarrassment the way we've treated our military in this country and now we are treating them as if they're all racists and that is absolutely reprehensible Yep, it absolutely is. So we'll uh, we'll move that to one more uh, reprehensible government policy, and it's almost laughable, but we'll wrap the show up on this one. Right here in my backyard in Saskatchewan, the the government has decided it was time to privatize the, what would they call the LCBO in Ontario, uh, 
it's called the LB here, the liquor board, but they're privatizing liquor stores. And of course, because government's in charge of it, they, well, they made a mess of it. Now, Scott Moe has been premier for almost six years now. Um, before him, Brad Wall had made an announcement that we're going to reform liquor sales. Any new liquor store going forward is going to be a private liquor store. Said, okay, okay. And that, uh, that seemed to go fairly well. I mean, there were Sobeys that opened up liquor stores and the uh, Loblaw superstores that opened up their own and co-op liquor stores in different communities. So that actually worked pretty well. And there was kind of a hybrid model before where smaller communities that, well, weren't big enough to have a standalone liquor store, like, uh, you know, a town of 700 people, would, you know, the local grocery store would become the agent for the, for the liquor board. And that seemed to work okay. Then Scott Moe, I guess, decided that this isn't going fast enough, so he brought an announcement out and gave all government liquor stores about about a month and said, yep, you're shutting down at the end of the year, and we're going to put bids out for all your, your liquor licenses. And I thought, well, I don't care if the government liquor stores wanted to compete as long as they were able to, but now instead, they've just said, yep, we're shutting it all down, and now we just have to negotiate all your severance packages because, of course, the government liquor stores were all unionized and now they're all closed. These buildings are gonna sit empty until either a private operator buys the building or chooses not to buy the building and buys their own building. But the bidding is just beginning now when these stores are closed. I, uh, I can't think of a worse rollout. I mean, I grew up in Alberta when they privatized liquor stores there in the nineties. It was, I won't say seamless, but it certainly went a lot better than this. Like I, uh, I can't imagine how anybody could screw it up worse. I'm just, I'm just stunned. Well, and I mean, it takes a long time to get everything in place to have a liquor store because um, we treat liquor as if it's crack cocaine in Canada. Like we don't, we don't treat adults like adults. We treat them like children when it comes to alcohol. Um, you got to get a license for everything you have to have, uh, like get this when you, when you want to get a liquor license, you have to provide a floor plan of your store or your restaurant or whatever. You have to provide a floor plan, uh, to the liquor board so they can approve your liquor license. Like, it, like something that has absolutely no bearing right like it's it's completely ridiculous how we treat everyone as if we're giving them crack cocaine um so it takes a long time to put all this stuff into place i mean anybody who's ever started a business <laughs> knows it takes a lot longer than a month to get anything into place for a business never mind a business that's dealing with liquor um, so this was, wow. I thought, you know, Ottawa <laughs> was incompetent when it comes to stuff like this. Sounds like Saskatchewan has kind of taken the cake on this one. Um, well, they just said, hold my beer and watch this literally. Yeah. <laughs> like I know in BC here, right. We have a mix, right. We've got government liquor stores and we've got private liquor stores and 
honestly, there's so many private liquor stores now that they that the government could probably shut down their liquor stores and and most people wouldn't even notice um, because the the private sector has kind of taken they have the majority of the stores now. Um, I don't I've never. I've never ever actually understood ever since I was a kid I've, I've never understood how the government can be competing against private industry um for the same market like I've never understood that uh but hey in in BC that's what we do um it's uh it's kind of crazy but that's that's the way it works but yeah <laughs> congratulations saskatchewan <laughs> you have taken the cake well they have i mean that's it's more a problem in our larger centers because that's where more of the government liquor stores were were centered based on what i said earlier a lot of times it was uh you know a grocery store or a convenience store that would have a separate area for liquor sales but now, in the case, like right here in my end of Saskatoon, there was a very big liquor store, a government one, like in the same parking lot as one of our bigger malls out here. And now it's this huge building that's going to sit empty unless some private operator decides they want to buy it. And if they don't, well, now then we, the taxpayer, are on the hook for this big building that's serving no purpose whatsoever. And we're hearing that from lots of communities in like smaller cities, the size of the community where you live, for example, out here are uh, saying the same thing. Okay, we've got this one big liquor store we had that was government run uh, that's going to sit empty because you now are having three or four private operators take the place of that one store. So now the taxpayer is paying for this one building. And I mean, should they have ever have done that in the first place? Well, no, but I mean, we love our government in this country. So they, they did operate. So why the hell couldn't they just allow the government to compete with private industry and let the, sure, let, the, let the market shut the stores down if they're not profitable? I know that's the angle that they're saying that all these stores weren't profitable, so they have to close, but why not make that a market decision? Instead, nope, let's just shut everything down at once and throw the system into chaos. Yeah, and I call BS on the stores not being profitable. Uh, I mean, come on, really? You're trying to tell me that Canadians don't buy enough alcohol to make it profitable. <laughs> well, exactly. Anyway, especially when you're you're barely even competing against private industry for those dollars. Like, you're trying to tell me that you couldn't make a a, a business case for a liquor store? <laughs> Come on, like that's give me a break. I mean, I know like here here in our town we've got so it's twelve thousand people. We've got one two three four four liquor stores and one of them is a government-run liquor store the other three are private and the government liquor store still operates and i'm sure they're still making a profit or else they would have shut that store down a long time ago um and uh and those and the people who work there make i think they make a solid 50 to 60% more than the people who work at the private stores because they're unionized and they're government jobs, right? So they get pensions and they get like $30 an hour. And uh, and they, they still, they're still open. They're still selling lots of liquor 
and alcohol and everything, even though there's three private stores in the same town. So, uh, yeah, I, I call BS on that, but. Well, exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just a shame that they didn't try to at least, I don't know, either roll it out slowly or just slowly, you know, scale back the, the government stores, but yep. Yeah, it's just one more way that ideology gets in the way. It's not even ideology. I mean, it's just, I guess they had an idea and said, um, yeah, maybe we'll just do this today. It's, uh, yeah, it's a real shame. Yeah. All right, Canada. Well, we're going to wrap it up on that. We'll, uh, we'll leave you hanging until next week. Um, if you haven't had a chance to listen, uh, I had published a rant yesterday and Lewis had published one a few days before that. So if you uh, get a chance to, to download those and tune in, please do. And otherwise, we will talk to you later on this week. And until then, it is Tony in Saskatchewan. And Lewis out here in BC. Good night. Good night, Canada. This is Canadian Common Sense with Lewis and Tony.